Entry, my dear, a conversational podcast about all things geology. I'm your host, Ellen. And I'm Jane. What are we talking about today? <laughs> well, Ellen, I know that <laughs> last podcast I promised that we talked about tsunamis. Oh, yeah, that's right. I knew what we were talking about today, which was tsunamis. It was, well, we were going to talk about tsunamis. We were supposed to talk about tsunamis. However, we will still get to them. I promise. I promise okay. to you that it will still happen. But uh, I wanted to interrupt our regularly scheduled programming to deviate because a couple days ago I went on a geology field trip led by Ooh. myself. <laughs> <laughs> so nobody pulled up at a bus and was like, seatbelts everyone. No. It was you. No, it was I just decided I wanted to get outside. I was tired of being locked in my house. So I was like, it's time to go outside. And so yeah, I just decided I want to tell you guys about my adventure into the wild. I think that sounds great. Forget tsunamis. We can talk about it later. They'll be around. They'll still be there. <laughs> so yeah, I promise next episode we'll be back to doing tsunamis. But this episode I figured talk about what happened while it's still fresh in my mind. And oh, the only other thing I wanted to mention before we get started is we got another response from a listener. Ooh. Hello, listeners. How are you? <laughs> so we got a response from one of our listeners and his name is... Hey was Smoochie Wallace. You sent us a question, and I thought it was a very good question. I'm speaking directly to you, Mr. Wallace. And the question was actually about being colorblind and being a geologist. And mm -hmm. I feel like, I felt like that was a question that there may be more than one person who's interested in that answer. So mm -hmm. what is the possibility of being a geologist when you're colorblind? Or you have some color limitations. An interesting, an interesting question. And I would have to say, it's not impossible. There's, there may be some classes that you take that may be a little bit more difficult than others, but I would say the majority of geology classes and jobs, in fact, don't require you to have color vision. I would say that there are even some geology jobs you can probably do if you're blind. Uh, if you you know if you were so inclined to be interested in geology and want to do something like that, there are plenty of geology jobs that are you know most of the work that you do is on a computer, and computers have so many adaptive features now to like read out any sort of research mm. that you're doing to you aloud mm. or you know stuff like that. So it's not really a problem. The only ones uh, the only classes that I thought might be more difficult but not impossible would be things like mineralogy is one of the ones that's more difficult. And then probably intro one, which is where you do hand samples mostly, like physical geology. That one would probably be a little more difficult. But the thing is with minerals and rocks is a lot of times when we look at them, we don't just define them by their color because sometimes their mm -hmm. color is deceptive because the color of a rock or a mineral can be based around weathering conditions that it was exposed to mm. and stuff like that. So you don't necessarily get a true vibe of the actual mineral or without you know, looking at a clean surface of it. So mm -hmm. color is kind of a, I, I won't say it's a throwaway indicator of what a mineral is, but it's just, it, you can't always rely on it when you're defining and categorizing different minerals and rocks. So yeah, I mean, there are plenty of people, I've known people who are colorblind who went through geology mm -hmm. training. So 
totally, totally go for it. If you're interested in it, go for it. And you never know, you'd probably be better at it than the people who have sight because they may just rely on their eyes and then, you know, forget the other qualities or the properties of a mineral and then just don't even think about it. They're like, oh, it's purple. I know that it's fluorite, but they don't check the hardness and it was actually quartz because it was an amethyst, you know, stuff like mm -hmm. that, like, you know. But yeah, if you have, if you struggle with mineralogy, hopefully your professors will help accommodate whatever you need to be able to yeah. be successful in their class. When I taught, did you get accommodation requests when you were a professor mm -hmm. or when you were I got a, a couple. Of, yeah, when I was a TA, I got a couple. Mm -hmm. yeah so did I and I it, so. it was never don't ever be afraid to ask for an accommodation if you need one you definitely shouldn't yeah it's it's totally worth it absolutely take take what you need like I had a student um who needed they had a hard time when they were trying to take an exam if they were surrounded by other people so I just let them take an exam in a separate room because I don't care that's mm -hmm. totally fine there's that's not hard you know I think if someone is not willing to accommodate you they're not in the right job yeah <laughs> so, that's for sure <laughs> so it's not a big deal all so, my students who wanted accommodations just wanted more time to do their work and I was like well you have to tell me when you're going to do your work then because I want you to still be accountable but you yeah. can have the time that you want and then there is always a there's a cutoff that yeah. teachers have to provide their grades by so yes. but anyway yeah, yeah all my no, students just wanted more time <laughs> But yeah, so I mean, you know, That's just make fine. your needs known and hopefully you can, you know, work around whatever needs you need. Yeah. And yeah. also if you're if your professor's being a jerk, you can change professors too. Absolutely. Drop that class like a hot yeah, minute. Forget it. Also, you should have like advisors. Your program should have advisors that you can talk to and stuff. Like you don't have to you don't have to like figure stuff out on your own. Yeah. But anyway. College tips and tricks. The tip is <laughs> drop a class if the professor's a jerk. Yes, you can always yeah. If hopefully. You, hopefully yeah. you can drop the class if, unless it's only taught by one jerk. Then you have to deal with them. <laughs> Stop crushing Ellen's, their dreams before they even Ellen's start. thinking about the one jerk that she had. <laughs> I can see it in his I face. I never dropped a class. You never I dropped mean, a I class ever? I've, I have dropped and withdrawn. I've done all the things you can do. Yeah. I don't think I audited a class. I don't think I did that. But I've done, I've dropped, I've withdrawn, I've done all oh, sorts of I things did I did I did drop a class once and change to a different class because I went to the first class and I was like this is stupid <laughs> the point I've done is, that too. you should find an accommodation if you need an accommodation you should tell your professor and they should they should make every effort to help you and if they don't you can find a new professor absolutely I agree with that you should you have to make college work for you that's yes. how university works yes college slash university yes pro tips from the geology Advice from girls. survivors. <laughs> and people who were formerly professor, or like briefly professors. Yeah, we were, we were both <laughs> adjuncts for our schools. So yeah. Yes. The schools that we graduated from, we I went mean, back. If you, if we you loved it so much. Or, we went if you back. teach in university or college, you're a professor. So we weren't tenured, but we were there teaching, professing. So <laughs> <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> thank you for the question, Mr. Wallace. Yeah, the good news is. Color is only Smoochie one factor. Color is only one factor of geology. You can, you'll be fine. Yeah, it's totally, it's totally easy to work around. There are even some jobs that are, you have to have geology knowledge, but they're like ancillary to geology themselves. So jobs, remote sensing, for example, or working with aerial photography, and you look at maps and stuff like that. You may not be able to work very well with color imagery of what you're looking at. The thing is, though, is that computers. The way that they describe images to us, yes, we see the the pixels that are being displayed on the screen as a certain color, but computers, they don't have human eyes. So they 
colors to them are just numbers. So you can use tools to see what number is the pixel value of a certain thing if you get confused. Mm, so you're like, is this green? True. Is this red? And so you can just check the pixel value and tell you. That's you a know. good point. So there's even it may make your life a little more difficult, but I don't think it's still impossible to do. So go for it. Go for it, Smoochie. I believe in you. <laughs> we believe in you. We believe in you. So anyway, now that we've talked about that, let's get on to our topic for today. Yes, for it's very much long. at length. So the trip. Ooh, ah, the, the field trip that I took. Without Miss Frizzle. Yes. Guidance. I don't think I, first of all, I also roped in one of my friends and made her come with me because I was like, this will be fun. We're going to go climb on rocks together. I don't think you should hike alone ever, but that's just my opinion. <laughs> I mean, people do it. I think it's more pleasant to have a second person just in case, mm. you know, something happens. And we were going on a weekday, so there wasn't, there wasn't that many people there. So it's mm. possible, like, if you fell down, someone may not find you. So it's good to have a buddy. buddy yeah buddy systems always and good. or have a plan yes or hopefully have cell service because we didn't once we got into the park it was just completely dead so yeah i think that happens a lot too yeah i think it does anyway the point is this park that we went to visit it was in missouri Ooh, missouri in the united states it's one of the states <laughs> in the united states and i'm telling you this because we have a lot of a we have a lot of international listeners and b mm-hmm. some people even who are very who live relatively close to the United States don't wouldn't know where Missouri is. Hmm. Like we have friends in Canada, I'm pretty sure that some of them wouldn't know exactly where Missouri is on a map. Tell us where on the map Missouri is approximately. So the way I would describe it for people who are outside of the United States is that it's almost in the very middle of the United States, except slightly yeah. east, slightly east and south of the very center of the United States. The technical geographic center of the United States is actually in South Dakota, which is like way north of there. But oh, I didn't know that. And it it borders with the Mississippi River. So the Mississippi River is a huge, huge river. It's a huge watershed that covers from anything that's east of the Rocky Mountains and west of the east coast of the United States. All water flows into the Mississippi River and out into the Atlantic. It flows from Illinois to Louisiana? Yes. Probably even farther, I forget. No, it's it's, it flows it's from, from like east Michigan? of the Rockies. Anything east of the Rockies wow. flows into because it's lower there. Yes. So it flows into it. There's actually, if you drive through Yellowstone National Park, you can actually mm. find the delineation line. That's like the exact oh, middle the of the continent. Line. Yeah, where the where water on one side of this line of this topographic high, you know, water on mm-hmm. one side of it goes to the Mississippi and the water on the other side goes to the Pacific, goes wow. to the Atlantic Pacific. So, yeah. I mean, I knew the Mississippi River was huge and it was a big watershed and everything, but yes. It's ultra massive. But anyway... <laughs> So, Miss, so Missouri is on along this on river, river, and mm-hmm. I would say states that people may know would be Texas, maybe. Texas is massive. It's north when I of, tell people where things are in the U.S., I use New York, Florida, Texas, and, and California. California. That's as... what I, that's exactly what I do too. <laughs> <laughs> These are my four corners. Because everybody, if you know anything about the U.S., you know kind of where those things are, right? Yes. So it's east of California. It's west of Florida yes. and west of New York. And north of Texas. And north of Texas. Yeah. And south. It's actually south of New York. It's west and south of New York. Southwest of New York, you might say. <laughs> but yes, I would say it's, also some people of may kind know. Of in, kind of in the middle is pretty uh, pretty good. Yeah. yeah. And I also would say it's south of Chicago, if anybody knows where Chicago is, which is mm. in Illinois. So it's part of the Midwestern states. It's south of the, therefore south of the Great Lakes. So if you look at a map, you can see where the Great Lakes are, right? Correct. Yeah. Because uh, Chicago is on Lake Michigan, so. I would say, what else about Missouri? It's part of the Midwestern states. 
the Midwest is one of four census groups. The gateway to the West. Ooh, yes. Well, that <laughs> specifically St. Louis, Louis is the gateway, is the gateway to, the to the West. Yeah. It's part of the Midwest is interesting because it's actually nicknamed the breadbasket of America, which people may have heard or heard, may have not heard before. But that's because the largest business that takes place in the Midwest is agriculture. So that's one of their main mm. exports. And so a lot of people get their food from the Midwest mm -hmm. or from California. We get a lot of fruits and stuff because of the climate that's in California. And Missouri has a lot of cultural significance too. I know we're going to go and talk about geology, but I just wanted to bring up that Missouri was where part of the Mississippian culture lived for thousands of years. It's one of the indigenous cultures that lived in, the, in North America. Mm -hmm. And also they lived in like Southeastern North America mm -hmm. for the most part. They were the dominant cultural group from about 800 to 1600 CE. And so way before European settlers mm -hmm. invaded. And they actually had, during one time period, they had a giant city that they had built oh, along the oh, Mississippi that was across the river from St. Louis, which is oh. close to where we're doing our, this is the reason why I'm talking about is close to where our geology trip is going. Mm -hmm. And the city was called Cahokia and we have mm. remnants of the city still there that's in Illinois and it's mm. you know it's like a 15 minute drive from downtown St. Louis maybe maybe cool. 30 minutes but yeah this city was huge it was actually it covered about six square kilometers or excuse me 16 square kilometers six square miles wow for Americans and its population actually is estimated to have exceeded London's at the same time when they were because they were concurrent because London was right. going out at the same time as yeah, Cahokia. Medieval Europe. Mm -hmm. And London at the time had about maybe like 14,000 to 18,000 people. The census wow. records are not as good. And Cahokia mm -hmm. had more. So it was huge. It was a massive city. So it was really cool. Um, but that's what cool. this area was kind of known for in the past. But nowadays, Missouri <laughs> and specifically St. Louis is known for three things. They're known for blues, and they're known for barbecue, and they're known for beer, the three Bs. Those are the <laughs> things that are important in Missouri like nowadays. <laughs> so St. Louis has St. Louis and Kansas City have a blues scene. St. Louis is more of the blues scene. Kansas City is more like jazz. And mm -hmm. Kansas City is one of the, another major city that's in Missouri, Missouri. but it's on mm -hmm. the west coast of Missouri, and this is the east coast. St. Louis is the east coast of Missouri. The west side of the coast. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And then <laughs> the west coast of Missouri. And... Kansas City and St. Louis also have individual unique styles of barbecue, which is fantastic. Ooh. And the headquarters of Anheuser-Busch are in St. Louis. So you cool. can get Anheuser-Busch beer here in St. Louis. You can Louis. also pet the Clydesdales, which is very important. Mostly I see them from a distance. <laughs> well, so they're big up close. They're a little bit intimidating. So I know I've implied this, but I live relatively close to St. Louis. And this trip that I decided to go on is actually to a location that is also near St. Louis, but it's about an hour and a half away. It's called Elephant Rock State Park. So Elephant Rock State Park is in Iron County, Missouri. So that's like... Iron County is a great name. I know, it is County. great. You want to know why it's called Iron County? Yes. Because there's iron deposits there. <laughs> I mean, I kind of mind. thought that that might be the reason. That's why I was like, <laughs> do I need to answer this question? No. <laughs> so yes iron county cool. missouri it's 87 miles from downtown so like if you decide for some reason you want to visit st louis an hour and a half away yeah by car basically. yes so if you want to visit st louis and you drive into downtown in a st louis environment yes, yes you can you can drive south to 
Iron County and you can see Elephant Rock State Park, which is really cool. So Elephant Rock State Park is a park that has these big old boulders that people say they're elephant shaped. I would say they're amorphous blob shaped. <laughs> but they're pretty blobby. I can see why Jane will post photos on our our social network or like on uh, Instagram and, and Twitter, I guess, but I can see why you would say they look like elephants, but yeah, they're pretty blob shaped. I I mean But if also you elephants are pretty blob shaped. People got really pumped because they were like, oh, these rocks are in a line. It's like elephants at a circus. They're like lined up, you know, from like tail to head, tail to head. Like that's mm-hmm. what they're supposed to look like. And I'm like, they look like rocks. But okay, <laughs> if you want them to look like elephants, I'm not going to tell you to ruin your life. ruining the whimsy. I'm not yeah. going to tell you to ruin, I'm not going to ruin your life. But it's really marketing, Jane. Several of, the, <laughs> several of the different literature that I reference throughout here has some very interesting ways of describing these rocks. <laughs> and there was one book that I was reading that was... It was called, I think it was called like Geologic Curiosities, like Missouri <laughs> Geologic Curiosities, something like that. Well, we'll That's post really the reference, but, for a book. <laughs> but the way that it describes them is very entertaining. Um, in fact, I will say that, uh, I'll get to this. There's like a quote that I have from from that, that okay. book. But these rocks, these elephant rocks are formed from granite. Which is mm-hmm. about 1.3 billion years old. Whoa. Billion, b, billion, billion. <laughs> it's a lot. They're How old. How many giga atoms? 1.3 giga atoms, <laughs> and they stand end to end. And a lot of people call the group of rocks a herd. I don't. <laughs> I don't because <laughs> they're elephant the rocks. Metaphor. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's one rock who's like the biggest. So there's. So these these rocks are standing on top of a dome, a granite dome. These rocks are just individual ones that are sitting on top of the dome. What is a granite dome? A dome is just, you know, like a semicircle. Yes. With granite, made out of granite. Is that really all that it is? Yes, that's really all that it is. (laughs) going to be like, and then there was like this Uh, thing happened and this happened. It eroded from a pluton, but we'll get into that. Okay. Okay, not yet. But they're they're just sitting on so top of rocks a flat, on top of a granite, dome. yeah, on top of a granite surface, you know. Okay. And the biggest rock that's sitting up there is called Dumbo. Apparently, that's his okay. name. All right. And he's twenty-seven feet tall. Okay. And thirty-five feet long and that's seventeen feet wide. A three-story building. And so, quote <laughs> from this book: On the basis of a weight of one hundred and sixty-two pounds per cubic foot, this preponderous paleopachyderm is estimated to weigh about 680 tons, making him easily the heaviest elephant on any continent. And I just, I just, this book was fantastic. If you guys ever are interested, they actually, there's a PDF of it available online. So I was reading the PDF. It's like 400 pages. It's huge, but it was so good. But just the way that this guy wrote was fantastic. And just, just very, all of them. Um, yeah, it's all marketing. It's very descriptive. <laughs> Really it was good. just entertaining. He's very yes. good. It's very good. It's an entertaining book. But anyway, yeah, so the, that's the main rock. It's, it's huge. That's Dumbo. Um, and there's several other smaller rocks of various size. Beyond that, okay. it was just the biggest one. And the one I think that's directly next to Dumbo is called Balancing Rock because it has like a very small base and it's wider in the middle and bigger. Mm. So, but, you know, due to the laws of inertia, it's not going anywhere. Yeah. Just going to sit there. So some people at first thought that these rocks were created through glaciers. 
So there's a term okay. that I've mentioned to Ellen before called glacial glacier erratics, glacial erratics. Mm -hmm. So the term erratic is a term used when you have a glacier that has carved off a piece of like a chunk of rock. It could be like the size, it could be huge. It could be like the size of a car. It could be tiny, but it carries it down. And then when the glacier melts, it deposits that rock somewhere that you wouldn't expect to find it. So <laughs> people thought at first that these were glacial rocks, but glaciers, even the last glaciation that we had didn't extend that far I was south. just thinking that. That seemed very far south. It did extend into Missouri, but not that part of Missouri. Okay. It extended into kind of the more Kansas City area of Missouri, okay. the western yeah, part that makes of Missouri. Sense. But it didn't get this far south. Interesting. So these were not glaciers. Okay. These are a product of weathering. Due to weathering, these, these elephant rocks sit on this granite dome and the term for this kind of exposed rocks that are surrounded by kind of gentle slopes on all sides and then all of a sudden you just have rocks appear out of nowhere like surprise mm -hmm. rocks that's called a tor t-o-r oh interesting so that's it's on a, a tor which is basically just a hill that has rocks on top of it you don't expect okay okay you know so a lot of times you see these more in places like ireland mm -hmm. or scotland where you'll just see grass, grassy field, grassy field. All of a sudden, there's just black rocks. And you're like, where did these come from? <laughs> and not like Stonehenge, like natural. <laughs> they were there beforehand. They weren't moved there by people. <laughs> so, but yes. Yeah, so elephant rocks sitting on this tour, this granite, this exposed granite. That's awesome. Cool. But let me talk to you about how these things got here. Let's get to the, the history here. Approximately 1.3 billion-ish years ago, <laughs> give or take, a couple million years, okay. there was molten rock mm -hmm. that was intruded into the subsurface of a continent. So let's, let's break this down. What was happening on Earth 1.3 billion years ago? This is a period of time called the Precambrian, which you may or may not have heard of before. I believe that you have probably heard of it before. Yeah, so the Precambrian in geologic history actually encompasses seven-eighths of earth's history wow so it is the largest majority of earth's history and it goes from four point you know six billion years ago from when earth first started and then it comes down to about in space yes. yes and then it comes down to about 500 million years ago so like 4.5 billion to 500 million years. It's a long time. It is. It's a huge time. But four, the thing is... 4 billion years. Yes. So the yeah. cutoff, the reason why they have set the cutoff of Precambrian time into the next set of time is because at that cutoff, at 500-ish million years, that's when you had shelled or like hard part critters, critters that have shells and stuff. That's when they first started to really become abundant. So that's how we define them, as you can see in the fossil record, a really big jump in, like, what kind of fossils you get. Hmm. So in Precambrian time, the kinds of fossils that you had at first were ferns. we had – No, we not even close. <laughs> we didn't even get to ferns until way like, later. Like uh, bacteria. Yes, bacteria. Ferns. Bacteria, you know, little uh, single-cell organisms, multi-cell organisms. Eventually – they ferns. get their things together. They get their ish together, and they form they get into their cells together. They form into soft, gooey critters. Some of them resemble worms. Would be mm. the good way to describe them. Uh, you know, it's exciting times. But yeah, so before before we had critters that had shells, we had critters just that were gooey. soft, gooey critters that 
the reason why they they didn't have shells is because there wasn't enough oxygen in the atmosphere for them to form shells. Hmm. The process that they need to create shells, you need to have an abundance of oxygen really? to do it. Yes. So that's hmm. why they didn't have any. Oh, I didn't know that. Good times. Cool. But yes. So what was going on on Earth during the Precambrian? There was a lot because, again, it's seven-eighths of Earth's history. We have mm-hmm. generally throughout the entire thing, the Earth is spinning faster than it, it was. Mm-hmm. So like no, right, it's spinning faster. It's faster than it is currently. Yeah. So in the past, it was spinning much faster. It was also hotter. Mm-hmm. There wasn't oxygen the entire time. There was, was oxygen. closer to the moon. It was. It was closer yes. to the moon. <laughs> there was there was less oxygen on Earth than there is now. In fact, like obviously when it first started, there was there was no atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Eventually it does get an atmosphere and that's when you get more of an abundance of critters forming. Mm-hmm. You still had them, you know, these bacteria and stuff, but it was a lot easier for them well, to Well they they're all anaerobic or whatever, right? Like they don't need oxygen too. Some some of them were anaerobic. Some of them are um they use chemo synthesis to right. eat some of them use instead of photosynthesis chemosynthesis and then some yes. of them you know developed into being carnivores some of them developed into other mm. things but yes the main fossils other goo. yeah <laughs> the main fossils you get from the precambrian are called stromatolites which are they're microbial mats is the way that it's described in books which does not sound appealing at all but it's critters little little organisms that do chemosynthesis to to live there are even stromatolites today, actually, in Shark Bay in Australia. They're still, they still exist. They're, they are some of the oldest living animals on the entire planet. I don't know if I would call them animals. They're sedimentary the formations oldest, created by photosynthetic cyanobacteria. They're the oldest living bioblobs on the planet. <laughs> some of the oldest living bioblobs on the planet. Bioblobs? Yeah, I don't know what else to call them. <laughs> yeah. they're, a, they're a living thing. Yeah, they're, you know, a they're a thing. But yeah, so just think about it. Earth is hot. Yep. There There's are no more... oxygen. It's spinning like There's crazy. There been... The day is super short. There was no such thing as time, but days were short. <laughs> Rotations around the sun were short. Nobody recorded time. It didn't matter. Nobody was farming <laughs> at that point. So time is a matter. construct. Time is a construct. So anyway, so that's what was happening at the time. And the Earth was mostly water. However... And it was hot. And it was very hot. By 1.3-ish billion years ago... There were actually these things forming called protocontinents. So protocontinents are, they were the initial continental masses that we had before we had, you know, actual, the continents that we have today. Okay. And they were much smaller. Mm-hmm. They formed through basically a coalescing of, of volcanic activity that was happening under the ocean. Mm. And there is evidence that there was some tectonism. It just wasn't the same kind of uh, plate tectonics, I should say. Mm-hmm. There wasn't the same kind of plate tectonics that were going on today. It's not exactly the same going on. After this time period, we actually end up getting a supercontinent called Rodinia. So Rodinia existed before Pangaea, but after this period of time that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. But anyway, the point is that there were these little continents that were already existing. And Mm -hmm. one of them was called Laurentia. So Laurentia is actually part of North America today. And we know it as the Canadian Shield. Ooh. That's near me. Ooh. Yes, the Canadian Shield. So the Canadian Shield is what is the term we use for it today. But Laurentia is the term that people used for the continent at the time that it was existing at this point. And <laughs> people didn't they use it now to refer to the yes. continent as it existed at that time. Yes, people exactly. It didn't exist. Yes. And it's like a completely <laughs> stable another thing that people call it is they call it the North American Craton, because it's the it's the part of the continent that was stable for 
billions of years now. So a it's been there. Just part of a continent that's a craton just means a large stable block of the earth crust forming <laughs> the nucleus of a continent. So the center okay. of the continent. So part that's not getting like subducted or whatever. Correct. Like, it's just stable and it's it everything all of the rest of North America was accreted. That's a term we use, but it was added on to this existing Laurentia. So Laurentia okay. was already there, and then everything cool. else added itself onto it, whether this... through mountain building events, so, you know, like the Appalachians mm. or the mountain building that's currently going on over in the Pacific Ocean, mm. or there were other, you know, sedimentary building events where we had, we used to have an ocean in the middle of the United States. Mm. So you got collections of shells and all sorts of things, and you get sedimentary beds in there too. But anyway, mm. so yes, so we have our craton. I feel a little more attached to the craton now than I used to. Yes. The craton actually extends down. The oldest part is the Canadian Shield, which is up up north and it surrounds Hudson Bay. Mm -hmm. But the Laurentia actually extends farther than that. It goes down into Missouri. Oh, really? And yes. And north up into Greenland. And it even extends, I think, into the northern part of Texas, maybe. Or at least Arkansas. Really? Wow, that's very far. Yes. So what happened was... What happened was, into this protocontinent, we mm-hmm. get a thing called a pluton forming, where molten material under the Earth's surface forms this 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 blob underneath the surface that we call a pluton. So it doesn't erupt; it just stays there. Yes, it's just okay. molten, and it's underneath the surface. It doesn't come out; just stays there. Mm-hmm. So molten surface, molten material cools down in this essentially like a bubble shape underneath the ground Hmm. it's not actually a bubble it's like an oval but as it cools it solidifies into a rock so in this case this kind of rock that it solidified into was granite Hmm. so granite is a very common intrusive rock Mm -hmm. it forms a lot of times through plutons this is a really common way for granite to form yeah we briefly talked about granite before we did i'll talk about a little more like what the content of this particular rock is but yes it was Hmm. this is how this particular set of granite formed Mm. and as this material cooled into this pluton there were some areas that developed small cracks in them and they were nearly vertical and we call those jointing or joints Mm. those are the terms we use them for some cracks so think about it when you have something really hot that's cooling down and solidifies into a solid most things Mm. contract when you solidify Mm. except for water which we'll also talk about (laughs) okay right so you get these joints, and they're nearly vertical. It's just due to the crystal structure of the granite. But hmm. these joints actually developed, and by developed I mean got slightly larger, because of upling, uplifting events, which were caused when we created the Appalachians, which were way after this. It was way after this period of time when the pluton was initially made. So this was like millions of years later, yeah. the Appalachians started to be made, right? Okay. So you have a thing forming under, under the surface... Under the surface, there's a pluton forming. It cooled down, and so it cracked. Yes. And then, and then that, had, those cracks were exacerbated when... Uh, when the North America smashed into Eurasia and Africa. And created, and created the, the Appalachian, Appalachian Mountains. Mountains. Okay. And so we get even bigger stress joints, you know, much larger. In the granite. What happens then is something called spheroidal weathering. So that's S-P-H-E-R-O-I-D-A-L, like a sphere. Like a sphere. Yes. So what you have is you have water. It's 
Severe weathering is defined as a chemical weathering event. So it's caused generally by water getting into jointed bedrock, which is what mm-hmm. this, this pluton was. Mm-hmm. And you get these, these, you get decaying of the rock from the joints inward into the rest of the rock. So. Oh, so it like makes a sphere inside of the rock? Yes. You get, so you get this, this weathering kind of like underneath the surface of the, the main pluton. And then what happens is a lot of times through exposure erosion. So this pluton, remember, was subsurface. It formed underneath the ground. Yep. When we had uplifting due to the Appalachians occurring, you got erosion of the surface that was above the pluton. So the pluton became exposed to the surface. Yeah, so when you say uplift, that means... Literally physically shoved upward. Upward, okay. Yes. So Above the surface in this yes, case. Yes, in this case it was above the surface. So it's exposed to surface temperature weather conditions. Mm. So it regular erosion took care of the top portion of the pluton. But inside of it, you already had these these breaks, these cracks that were being weathered from groundwater that was infiltrating mm. into the rock. Okay. And it created these things that they call saprolites. So saprolites are just like round rocks. <laughs> they They look like... Sometimes you're like, here's a highly specific term. It means a round rock. And sometimes you're like, what do you think that pre-Cambrian means? And it's like the time before Cambrian <laughs> era. Exactly. So they have these these saprolites. They're just rocks. Like, I don't know how to describe it, except they're just like rocks that have, you know, it's you have weathering in between rock. them. That's really what it is. Like, it's not yeah. anything That's more exciting than that. But what happens is these saprolites get more, instead of just getting chemical weathering now, now we get physical weathering because they're outside. You know, they're not, they're exposed mm. at surface conditions. So, so they start chemical- to... I guess I feel like when I think of water or water, I always think of it as like physical weather- weathering in the sense of like the water is moving. But I mean, it is a chemical process, technically yeah. speaking. Yeah, it is a chemical. Sense. It's a chemical process. Physical weathering is probably like wind. So like another form of stuff. physical weathering is freeze-thaw. Freeze-thaw is another mm. type of physical weathering. So freeze-thaw does involve water and it is physical. And mm. that's that was happening. Once these saprolites were exposed, they were subjected to freeze-thaw. So what you have in freeze-thaw is you have... Water getting into these cracks. Because I guess with chemical weathering, but when it's under the surface, it's not the temperature changing that causes no. it to weather. It's no, because the, the temperature is consistent. The, the water uh, with the actual material of the bedrock. Yes. As the, opposed to the water. The water is dissolving, and... slowly dissolving pieces of the bedrock underground mm-hmm. until it becomes exposed. And then it's subjected to, you know, yeah. freestyle and stuff like that. Which is now what you're about to describe. Exactly. So what happens with freestyle is that when, when water freezes... It's an unusual liquid because most liquids, when they freeze, they contract, which we talked mm-hmm. about with magma. When it freezes, it contracts into mm-hmm. a rock. But water, because of its chemical structure, it has a really fancy chemical structure. Mm-hmm. And the way it's most comfortable when it's a solid is it actually spreads itself out and mm-hmm. it expands, which is bizarre because, like, <laughs> other liquids don't do that. Water is the only one that expands when it's, when it's, uh, when it's frozen. So because of that, when you have water infiltrating these rocks that are exposed at the surface, so like rain or whatever, mm-hmm. the water gets in and then in winter you freeze and it, expre- it spreads and it essentially makes like a wedge shape in these already vertical joints that exist and mm-hmm. further pushes the rock and over time will slowly destroy the rock. Mm-hmm. I'm and familiar it- with ice. I live in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> and it creates these, it, it will create some of the physical weathering that you get will create peeling, like layers of peeling rock that they call mm. spalling. Mm. And yes. um, sometimes, 
and they, they it comes off in like shells like you'll get like co like these concentric shells that like pop off it looks like when you open a flower like you have petals that are coming off of an open flower so you can also or like the layers of an onion does it really look like that mm -hmm. oh it does a lot look of times like it that. comes yeah it does and it comes off in sheets like Some as well like it, i said i only i've only ever heard of i've only ever thought about the term spalling when talking about concrete because my husband is a civil engineer so that's the kind of and we've done much of renovation on our house and stuff so this is also where i know about freestyle from because of dealing with things freezing pipes and stuff in your house well no freezing <laughs> ground and how you construct things because when the, because water in the ground also expands yes. and that causes problems so yes things have to be anyway it, that's a whole you have to plan for it it's fun but yeah, I've only ever heard about that kind of spalling. So this type of pattern that you see on rocks, which we should post on. Um, yeah, we can post on it. our social. Would I think be I have. I don't think I have any. Pictures. It looks like. So the thing is, these have weathered so much that they're not at the. They're not saprolites yeah, yeah, anymore. Yeah. So but the next can... the next stage of this development is you go from saprolite and then you weather in even more into these kind of rounded boulder shapes. And mm -hmm. those are called core stones. So once you've gotten off all of the. The rest of the the spall once the cracks in the spall have come off you're left with this one round rock on the inside and it's not mm. fully rounded it can be like oval shape it can be whatever but it's smooth the surface yes is smooth. it's relatively smooth and it's flat on the top but it's rounded on the sides and what happens is it continues to weather from the sides in rather and like also on the very very top but the the rounded edges of the rock are much more vulnerable than the flat edges of the rock so that's why they that's why the the rocks maintain this kind of elongated oval oval shape because they last longer in the long direction than they will in the side direction where their where their jointing was originally. Hmm. Okay. So cool. But yeah, so those are core stones. So what we have left what elephant rocks are. Those are core stones that are left on top from cool. this long weathering process. Is that like weathering process a standard process? It's like this. Yes, they they are different terms depending on the size of the rocks. So if you have a larger so the pluton itself, if the pluton itself is going over this mm. kind of, if it didn't undergo chemical weathering underground and you yeah, didn't so get So the pluton this, just becomes exposed. Yes. If your pluton just becomes exposed, it goes through a similar process and it's called, it ends up being called an exfoliation dome where oh. it's affected A, by freestyle, but B, also by the unloading of the, of the sediment that's on top of it. Mm. So, so like it you get cracks. Up. Yeah, when it rises up, you get cracks because mm. it's being moved around. Mm. And you also get that flaking effect. So they don't call it spalling there. It's called exfoliation. But it's mm. it's just a different scale. It's the same process. Interesting. But, so yeah, some more geomorphology for y'all, for you kids who are interested <laughs> in geomorphology. I'm interested in geomorphology. But yeah, they they were, it was really cool to see them because, you know, I don't really get to see. First of all, these rocks are dang old. They're so old. <laughs> well, you right? said they're from Laurent the Laurentian um, craton, right? It was intruded into that craton, so they're younger than the craton itself. If that makes mm. sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The craton had to exist for but it to be intruded into. They're one point three billion years old. They're so <laughs> old. They're so old. It's so cool. <laughs> these were here before fish. These were here before were. dinosaurs. These were here before people. These were here before trees, okay? <laughs> they were here these before rocks, ferns. Yes, these rocks were here. They weren't here before that cyanobacteria or whatever. They were but... here, and it's crazy to me. Like, that's so cool. Like, they it were here cool. so long, and they've and they've gone through all of this, and they're still here. This is they've... the excitement you should have brought at the beginning of the episode. <laughs> 
it's just like I don't know I just it's just really interesting to me that it's like mm. and it, it went through this kind of intensive weathering process and they're still here and they're like hey what up y'all I'm still here you can't take me down I'm granite I'm real cool so saprolite is the altered rock that was affected by chemical weathering inside of the saprolite is the core stone it's inside yeah. of the saprolite so once the saprolite sloughs off in the spalling process you're mm-hmm. left with just the mainly unaltered, not chemically altered, you know what I mean? Core storm. Oh, Coast so down. like this is saying perhaps that the original chemical weathering didn't intrude all the way to like the center. No, it doesn't go all the way. It doesn't go it doesn't alter the entire sample. What mm, happens is you get I see. You get well it can't it, it starts can't. from the joints <laughs> and works it ways it works it way in. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like you get extensive water contact at the joints Mm -hmm. but you don't get water contact at the very center of these Mm. you know of these unaltered stones Mm. so that's why the core stones are called core stones it's because they Mm. they were unaltered by this water Mm. and then it comes to a point like these were so old that the evidence of all of the spalling so like all of that cracked off Mm. rock and all the little flakes it's all gone by now because it was all Mm -hmm. eroded Mm. so all you have left are the core stones which are you know about as unaltered of rock nowadays because they're exposed to physical weathering they also get lichen and stuff on them so they're breaking down that way mm. but yeah. and you know and rain get rain yeah, on them wind, or whatever whatever freeze thaw they're still being subjected to that but yes. but yeah if you were to like drill into one of these you would have the original unaltered pluton stone which is cool, really cool. interesting the unaltered granite yeah so the surface is still being weathered but it it's, yeah, it hasn't. This is the portion that hasn't been chemically weathered yet. Yes, and the other thing that you get from these particular types of rocks, this process, especially with granite, is you get a lot of clay, because clay is one of the processes or one of the outputs of this chemical weathering process. Hmm. So the rock gets broken down by the water and gets turned specifically into specifically from granite. Yeah, granite's oh. a, a big clay depositor. Interesting. I never uh, thought about that before. I was just like, clay is clay. It comes from clay, you know? Oh, we will get into clay, man. I could <laughs> actually I can talk I know, about clay for a long time. <laughs> I know that you love soil, so I know that that's something that you would like to talk about. <laughs> I do. Some other features that we have that were caused by this, uh, the freeze-thaw mechanism are called panholes. P-A-N-H-O-L-E-S. Mm-hmm. Panholes. So panholes just look like a round, flat bottom depression in a rock Mm -hmm. and we see these on the exposed surface of the pluton Mm -hmm. that is still available there that hasn't been turned into elephant rocks Mm -hmm. the elephant rocks are sitting on this under this pluton by the way so So pluton is exposed though yeah the pluton is exposed yeah so so you basically have exposed bedrock in this area and then there's panholes in the panholes are a term for those shallow depressions that are just eroded into rock they are sometimes people call them potholes also mm-hmm. but the thing is potholes the term that we use technically it should only be attributed to things that were created through river action fluvial action hmm. so it doesn't make sense to use the term pothole here the term panhole is much more appropriate hmm. but yeah what happens is you just get some little irritation some minor divot in a rock hmm. and over time weathering freezing and rain and you know, wind and whatever else gets in there and it slowly carves out a depression mm. over, in this case, millions of years. And you end <laughs> yes. up with bird baths uh, in your ground. They look like, uh, some people call them bird baths colloquially, but panholes mm. is the proper term for them. But yeah, that's what they look like. They look exactly like a bird bath. It did. It does. Yes. So those are the bird baths. So those are on top of the plutons. And there's probably some on top of the elephant rocks themselves. I just can't see them because 
They're 30 feet tall. Yeah. 25 <laughs> feet tall or whatever. Yeah. You know, I can't, I can't see over them. You didn't bring your stilts? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's multiple areas. We have these quote-unquote elephants, and then there's other areas we can see the jointing that's still occurring that hasn't fully rounded out into these core stones hmm. yet. Those are just like the most exposed ones. There are some so other some core have, stones. Some have become core stones and some haven't yeah. yet. Okay, interesting. So one of the areas of the park, like along the trail, is called Fat Man Squeeze. And it actually is just a kind of a narrow pathway through the rocks that's just a vertical joint. <laughs> and they decided oh. to put the cat they decided to put the path through it. So cool. that was that's fun. <laughs> so that was that. I think I it took mean, a video of me walking through it because it's a little if you're claustrophobic, you may not want to watch it, but it's not that narrow. It's reasonable. I mean you can see the sky. It's not yeah. like crazy. It's, it's human width. It's fine. Human <laughs> It's fine. You wouldn't get stuck. I don't think you get stuck. And they have this park is actually really interesting. One of the things that I really like about it is that there is the trail that I was on. It's called the Braille Trail. And the mm-hmm. thing is, it's actually the only trail in the, in the state of Missouri that's designed for people who are visually impaired oh. or who have, you know, physical handicaps as well. Mm-hmm. So it's like they made a hard surface trail that's. Oh, so it's like paved and stuff. Yeah, that's it's nice. like paved and it's well maintained and it's it was nice. They Accessible. had they had braille signs everywhere Great. put up and that's it was really just really nice. cool. Yeah, I really liked it. I thought it was nice. And also it was nice for me because then, you know, I wasn't slipping all over leaves and stuff like that while I was trying to walk <laughs> along this trail. <laughs> Not that we didn't go off trail, because we definitely did, but, mm-hmm. you know, it was good to have some time where I was saving my knees from the inevitable slippage. But, <laughs> yeah, the the term for these types of rocks, this particular formation, that's a term that we use in geology, but is called the Graniteville Granite, which is very... <laughs> geologists the and their names. Department. <laughs> geologists and their names. They, uh... But so, yeah, it's Graniteville Granite. It's very original. It's an original name. <laughs> and it's found specifically in this part of Missouri. Oh, one of the things, one of the other things I found through my research that I thought was really cool was that there are, there's a process where you can do aeromagnetic maps where you use a specific, specific instrument that's attached to an airplane and you fly it over an area and you can collect magnetic information about whatever you're flying over. Huh. So if you didn't know, Ellen and listeners, the earth has its own magnetic field, but then also mm-hmm. other rocks, minerals, shapes of things affect local magnetic fields. So you have mm. a general magnetic field and then you have a local magnetic field. So like mm. an earth, earth-wide magnetic field and then like a general yes. one. Because of that, you have to actually, if you're doing any kind of camping or hiking or anything, you actually have to account for changes in magnetic declination when you're just about to walking ask you around. That. Yes, mm. you have to account for it. But it also changes based on what kind of materials there are because some materials are more magnetic than others and some create their own magnetic fields. Magnetite mm. is one of the minerals that creates its own magnetic field. Hmm. Some exciting um, have different effects on magnetism than others. But the point is when you see even though this pluton is, you know, somewhat underground, it's not fully underground, but it's in this pluton, by the way, I don't think I mentioned this, but this this granite is huge. It's massive. It stretches all the way past St. Louis, but St. Louis, which is an hour and a half away, away, yeah. But St. Louis, eighty mile, ninety, almost ninety miles away, it was like St. Louis is still covered by about four thousand feet of sediment, and so you can't uh-huh. see the bedrock. It's not exposed there. It's just exposed. But it's the here. same bedrock. It's the same bedrock, correct? Mm. 
that's just something to consider is that this cool. is not a, this is not a small pluton you know it's not a tiny oh. thing but it in when you look at it in uh aerial magnetic maps it actually looks like an oval you can see it on the on the ground oh because of the different magnetisms that occur on the center of the pluton and then on the edges of the pluton because the mm. edges of the pluton is where it interacted with whatever you know country rock whatever existing rock was already there mm-hmm. so the craton and so you get different kind of mineral interactions there than then you do get at the center of the pluton which is just pure granite mm. and so it shows up differently in a magnetic field interesting so it looks like an oval it's really cool you can see them so, so basically you're saying you can see because of the magnetism because of the interaction of the material in the pluton at the edges yes with whatever the rock uh, originally was that yes. was there the before it was intru- intruded yes is that right yes. <laughs> is that the right word yes <laughs> You can see with this arrow, uh, arrow magnetic imagery, you can see the shape of the pluton. Yeah. So cool. even if even in parts where it's underground and stuff, you can see it. It's yeah. really cool. Like cool. under, you know, it's not exposed. It's cool. Underneath I, four thousand feet of sediment and wait, did you say four thousand feet? Yes, four thousand. Four thousand feet. feet of sediment and then also all the buildings and stuff that's on top. <laughs> <laughs> yes. In St. Louis, downtown St. Louis. Yes. And the other thing I guess I wanted to talk about with granite, this particular granite, the Graniteville granite is I also have I have pictures so I was going to post it. I was going to post what this Graniteville granite looks like. Mm-hmm. So I talked that it's granite, and we've mentioned granite before, but granite is a kind of generic term for intrusive felsic. So felsic rocks are rich in silica minerals, silicate minerals, mm-hmm. and they are poor in anything that's mafic, so in magnesium or iron based minerals they're still there they're just not in as high of a quantity Hmm. but this graniteville granite is medium to coarse grained which means that you can see the crystals with your naked eye which is Hmm. fantastic it's really cool to see and it is it's chunky that's what you're saying yeah it's chunk chunk. it's chunk (laughs) and that only happens because it took so long to cool the crystals if Hmm. you the longer you take to cool the bigger your crystals will be Hmm. because they had time to form Mm. versus if you cooled rapidly like you were shot out of a volcano you have really fine crystals and you can't see them (laughs) i was shot out of a volcano once (laughs) and i have fine crystals to prove it (laughs) so this this particular granite is about 55 percent feldspar alkali feldspar so that means that's feldspar that's rich in either potassium or sodium or somewhere in between that so like there's Hmm. mixes that are you know kna2 or two k2na you know and then they're mm-hmm. like an aluminum silicates. But anyway, so um, K-spar is potassium feldspar. The other term for that is orthoclase feldspar is pink. So this is a very, very pink granite. It's super pink. It also has 40% quartz in it. So it has, you know, clear crystals. Hmm. And cool. it also has white crystals, which were albite. Albite, you know, albus is mm-hmm. Latin for white. Yeah. Right. And albite is the sodium-rich version of feldspar. So it's a white feldspar. And it does have some mafic minerals, such as muscovite and, well, muscovite's not, but biotite, really. Biotite Hmm. is a type of mica. It's like a dark-colored mica. Hmm. It has about 5% of mafic minerals. So, but really, the main takeaway is that this is a very pink granite. It was very, very pink, and it was really pretty to look at. Reminds me of like the granite in Acadia National Park is also super pink. Yeah, some of the so there's there's two different kinds of granite in Acadia, and one of them's really pink, and then one of them's the the Dalmatian looking one mm-hmm. that I think of. 
And this particular this particular yes. granite also has some areas that have little bits of topaz, Ooh. of beryl, which you may know as emeralds, Ooh. Ooh. or aquamarine, which are Ooh. used all three of those are used a lot of times for jewelry. Is mostly mm-hmm. what people are using them. And there are some sulfide minerals, which we talked about earlier. Oh, dangerous. <laughs> yeah, that's why it's called Iron County in Missouri, because there's iron sulfides there. Oh. Such as one of your favorite minerals, <laughs> pyrite, is located Ooh. there. Ooh, Ooh. pyrite. There's I think also... when we talked about it, you did say there was pyrite of it, like somewhere in Missouri. I feel like we Yeah, maybe. I don't know. I don't know if I mentioned it on the podcast. I think I've talked about it before. Hmm. There's also a part of Missouri that has other sulfides, too. It's called the lead belt of Missouri. Can you guess what kind of, <laughs> what kind of sulfides <laughs> might be there? Straight arsenic, obviously. <laughs> yeah, there's... Yeah, lead sulfides. The... The state mineral of Missouri, which I didn't mention before, it's but it's galena, and galena is a, oh. a lead sulfide. Yeah, you talked about that. Before. Yeah, my yeah. my sample. I mentioned that my sample of galena is from Joplin, Missouri, which is mm. part of the lead belt. Yes, we did talk about that. So yeah, that was. I mean, that was galena. all of Elephant Rocks. I mean, there were other, there were other geologic features that were in the area, but for some reason, all of them were named like Devil something. <laughs> so there was like the Devil's Walls and like the Devil's Toll Gate. And like the devil's <laughs> honeycomb, and I was like, "What is happening, Missouri?" I think so. <laughs> no, I think there's just a lot of geological formations that people call the devil's whatever. Like that's I, just I a don't thing. know how the devil got naming rights. All these things, <laughs> like, does he have? No. Is it TM the devil TM? I don't know. <laughs> anyway, I just that was one thing that amused me because I was just looking at other features in the area, and it's like, oh, you can take this trail and go through the devil's toll gate, and I was like, why is it called the devil's wall? I'm like, I think I'll pass. <laughs> like the wall is there; it's doing nothing to you. Now the toll gate apparently, supposedly, it was called the Devil's Toll Gate because people who were um, going through with their wagons would have to stop and remove stuff from their wagons to get them to fit through the quote unquote Devil's oh. Toll Gate. So mm. that may be part of it. Either way, yes. though, I just I was like, uh, anyway. The only <laughs> other thing I think that's interesting about the this particular park, the state park, is that there's a quarry there. This quarry was, it's not in production anymore. But it opened in 1869. Wow. And That's a long time ago. The, it has been producing a, this beautiful granite that they call Missouri Red. I think it's more of a pink, but it, it's kind of red too, I guess. It's marketing. <laughs> Same with the devil's, like, whatever. It's all marketing. But yeah, it was exported across the country. It was not just maintained, you know, in local St. Louis buildings. There's a monument in Pittsfield, Massachusetts for Thomas Allen that is made from Missouri red granite. And it's actually a single column that's 42 feet high and four feet, two inches square at the base. Wow. So that's huge. It's it's huge. Yeah. It's a giant piece of granite. And then it's also been used for parts of Marshall field, which was in Chicago and in some buildings in like new Orleans and San Francisco, Pittsburgh and some other cities. But I think the, the, the major part of this granite that I think of is that it's actually first of all there's millions of paving blocks of it were used in downtown St. Louis and also in the levees that were Mm -hmm. used for the Mississippi River Hmm. but then it's also the facing stone for Eads Bridge which is one of the bridges it's Mm. north of the arch so it's north of downtown where the 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 St. Louis Arch is what Yeah, the St. Louis about. Arch. For people who don't live in St. Louis. I don't know. I just forget about it. But it's north of the St. Louis Arch, and it crosses over the Mississippi, so it connects Missouri to Illinois. That's E-A-D-S. I just Googled yes. it. And 
the piers are not made of this granite, but they, they're covered in this granite. They're mm. faced with this granite, which I thought was really interesting. Cool. But yeah, these these rocks were mainly hand chiseled, which wow. is kind of a pain in the butt. Um, <laughs> I was watching a video that the park, the park site actually posted that was a video that was taken in the 30s. And it's pretty crazy to watch because you watch people, you know, hand hammer these rocks. Mm. You can find like zones of weakness. They they basically they would put a chisel in it and they would create a wedge shaped hmm. indentation into the rock. And then they would do it along like a line across the rock and eventually the rock would just split in half. And so that's how mm. they were able to get chunks of it. And apparently these granite paving blocks were roughly the size of shoe box, shoe boxes. Mm-hmm. And they sold for about eight cents each at the time. So at this rate, a good block maker, quote unquote, produced 50 blocks per day, could earn $4 a day. Wow. Apparently that was considered a good wage. They also had a couple of cranes that were installed to lift heavy rocks, like some of the bigger chunks of rocks, onto the back mm-hmm. of trucks. And then they would use their trucks to drive them off. Mm-hmm. And you can actually see the quarry is still there and you can walk around it. And they actually have some of the remnants of the equipment that used to be there. So oh, cool. drilled into some of the rocks themselves were these these uh, iron, like, cable tie things that were used to tie the crane's boom so that they could mm-hmm. operate it. Mm-hmm. And they're still there. So you can – I took pictures of them. I'll probably post them too. Like an anchor kind yeah, of Yeah, essentially. Yeah, it's like a cool. metal – it's like a metal iron metal ring, you know, yeah, any, to, like to hold anchor. it in place. Okay. And what else was there about the quarry that was interesting? A lot of it was interesting to me. I mean, yes. <laughs> Mainly they used railroad transport because that was just what was – there was a railroad station well, very nearby. Well, cars in the 30s were like the new tech, so. Exactly. But there were a lot of – and also, I mean, this this has been operation since the 1890s, so mm. that's why railroads Yeah, so the, well, the rail network was set up then, so they already had the infrastructure. Apparently, by 1902, 16 granite cars were operated regularly, shipping Missouri granite throughout the country. There's also at the park, we didn't go to it, but there's an old engine house there. You can go and check that out, too, if you're interested. Oh, you mean like train engine house? Yeah. Yes. (laughs) And also, the governor's mansion in Jefferson City, Missouri, which if you don't know, that's the capital of Missouri, it's also faced with this kind of granite. It's not... um, Of course. It may not be granite from this particular quarry, but it's the same kind of... Same type of granite. Yeah, from this area of Missouri. So, yeah, that was all I wanted to talk about. Um, If you guys have questions for me, I'd love to, to hear them. I have... I'll be posting these pictures on social media happily. I have too many. I took a lot. I even <laughs> took a couple of videos that I may or may not post, depending on I haven't listened to them yet, so I don't know what the, the sound quality is like. But I was like, Ooh. Sounds like na- nature sound. I was like, <laughs> field work. Ooh. <laughs> I was like, while. oh, cool. It's been a while since I've done Rocks. work that wasn't behind a computer, so it was nice yeah. to go outside. And I would recommend that you – so the way I found this park was that I just Googled geology near me or something like that or state parks near me and then it said elephant rock i'm like what is that and then i just found it so i mean you know i would strongly encourage you to find if there's anything in your local area that you want to explore and learn more about it's just it's very it feels good it's very worthwhile and it's fun to do some you know some digging i did some research to get more information about the formation of these rocks and stuff like that so do recommend. Highly recommend. I found a whole PDF about the geology in my local area. Oh, there's tons. There's a ton for your area. Ontario has a ton of stuff written for it. And I have researched a lot of it. I feel like there's a lot going on. There's like glaciers and we're on the Great Lake. And then there's and you're the right whole, near the shield. The Canadian Shield. 
which is exposed, but it's not exposed near you. You have to go closer to Ottawa. I have to go farther north. North and east, specifically. But there's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff. We went to the Badlands. The yes, local there are Badlands. Badlands there. There's a lot of interesting stuff in Ontario. Well, that was really interesting. I, we learned a lot about weathering. And freeze thaw and spawning. Yes. And tour. Yeah, I learned what a tour is, and then I forgot, and then I learned again. <laughs> and the elephant rocks, like, they look moderately like elephants. <laughs> the important takeaway here is there is, I mean, we all live on Earth, and there is, there's geology stuff that you can observe all around you. So go out and do that in a safe, uh, coronavirus pandemic safe way. Yeah, or just Google YouTube videos. That works, too. <laughs> I, hope, I hope you all enjoyed hearing about Dumbo. And <laughs> Dumbo and co. Dumbo and the rest of the herd. <laughs> I feel like all of this will the Dumbo metaphor will it will make sense when you see the photos because they don't look or like maybe elephants. it won't. They Jane don't think so. <laughs> they look like an angry fist. Dumbo specifically looks like an angry fist to me because he Dumbo specifically has a lot of vertical jointing still in him because he's mm -hmm. like degra degrading really quickly. So it look it looks like it looks like a fist to me. It looks yeah. Like, they do kind of look like knuckles, like fingers. Yeah, like you're looking at fingers because yeah. of the vertical joint. It's like you just can't see the thumb because they like tuck the thumb away. But that's what it to looks really like. call them like fist rocks. Or yeah. Something. Anyway, we would like your questions. You could tell us about your lo favorite local national park or geological. What was the book called? Geological eccentricities or something? The curiosities. It was like oh, Missouri <laughs> geologic wonders and curiosities of Missouri. So you can tell us about your local geologic curiosities and wonders. And maybe we'll talk about them like we talk about everybody who sends us messages. Oh, absolutely. We would love to hear them. We would love to. But we still like to hear about your favorite rocks and minerals. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, like, it would also be nice because it's like, it gives me ideas for vacations. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, it's, yeah. <laughs> You're interested, you know. <laughs> That's great. It's definitely all about you, the listener, not about Jane's travel Planning my plans. vacations in the future. <laughs> No, anyway, nothing to do with that. To do that, you can send us a uh, direct message or you can tag us on Twitter at SaidMyDearPod or you can also message us or leave a comment on our posts on our Instagram, SaidMyDearPod. You can send a message through our website, which is sedimentaryofmydear.com or you can send us an email directly at sedimentarypodcast at gmail.com. Well, I hope you all enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. And that's really what matters most. <laughs> <laughs> and I promise you all will see the pictures too. So you'll have some visual explanation to look at as well. And then next time, what are we going to talk about next time? Are you going to commit to talking about tsunamis? Next time we are definitely going to talk about tsunamis because wanted to talk about I haven't gone on a field trip at any point. Me. I haven't gone on a field trip at some other point throughout this. So <laughs> if I go on another field trip, I'm not going to promise anything. But <laughs> Well, next time I'm excited to actually hear about tsunamis. But this was very interesting. And we learned about, I, I learned things about weathering, which I think is very interesting too. So Yeah, it's nice Thank to talk about something about that's trip. not going to kill us all. Yeah, last time it did get a little bit of a, it was a bit of a bummer at the end. This time was just like, there's some rocks and they're slowly eroding and they look like And they're old and, and they're so old and it's cool. <laughs> okay, so next time tsunamis. Yep. Okay, thank you for listening. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Our sources for this episode are Process Geomorphology, 5th edition by Ritter, Cockle, and Miller. Earth, an introduction to physical geology, 9th edition by Tarbuck and Lutkins. Missouri State Parks page for Elephant Rock State Park, which is mostateparks.com slash park slash elephant dash rocks dash state dash park. Field trip number six, Rapakivi Granites and Related Rocks in the St. Francis Mountains, Southeast Missouri by Kiesper Sanier and Hebrank. And Geologic Wonders and Curiosities of Missouri, second edition, revised by Vineyard. 
Music for its sedimentary, my dear, is provided by Solar Slays. You can find his music at youtube.com slash user slash C-C-F-U-L. S-E-A-S-E-A-F-U-L.